This morning, as we continue our way through the Gospel of Mark, we also begin a new study. If you have your Bibles, please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible this morning, right in the pew in front of you, you should be able to find one. There's an index in the first couple of pages, and you can find in the index the New Testament Gospel of Mark. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not your average biographies. In fact, that's pretty easy to tell just in reading them uh, because a third of each of the Gospels focuses on seven days in Jesus' life. All four of them do that, okay? Uh, we know very little about, uh, about Jesus' growing up except for one story when he's 12 uh, and, and what happens in his birth up to age two. Uh, what it really focuses on is this three-year ministry of Jesus. But that's all to say that the Gospels um, are agenda. They have an intention. They're not just providing a biography of Jesus. They want to show us specific or particular things about Jesus. And here's what's happening uh, for the next few weeks as we move through the Gospel of Mark. He wants us to connect the dots between the ministry of Jesus Christ in the little area of Galilee, in the nation of Israel, and the ministry of the God in the Old Testament, of God the Father. Okay? He wants us to connect what God is doing now in Jesus Christ with what God has done in Israel's history. And so week after week, uh, we will see as Mark presents particular happenings that all connect Jesus with the God of the Old Testament. For us... Uh, that may be important for a different reason. For a Jewish audience, they need to see the continuity, that the same God that started with Israel is continuing his work in Jesus Christ. For us, uh, often our problem is different. We would very much be happy with the ministry of Jesus, and we'd very much like to leave the God of the Old Testament, at least in certain places, uh, behind us. Interestingly enough, that was a relatively early uh, heresy within the church. Uh, an early church teacher in the third century by the name of Marcion decided he wanted to de-Judaize the Bible. And so he threw out every gospel but Luke. He stripped every New Testament book that was slightly Jewish, like the book of Hebrews or James, for example. And then he just deleted the Old Testament and started over. And he said, let's just move forward. Let's forget uh, but if you're a careful reader of the New Testament, including the Gospel of Luke, you, you have to realize that when you do that, you're sawing the branch off that you're seated on. You have to recognize that you're removing the floor that you're standing upon. Jesus constantly points to the Old Testament, constantly validates his ministry from the Old Testament. When the apostles begin preaching in the book of Acts, where do they preach from? What is their Bible? The New Testament hasn't been written. It's all about the Old Testament. And sometimes we hold these distinctions of the differences between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, but that is clearly, for followers of Jesus, a mistake. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to stitch together these ideas of the Old Testament and the New, of the God who brought about the Exodus uh, for the Israelites and Jesus who came to bring the New Exodus. Uh, so this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 6, in verse 30, let's read together. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and ran there on foot from all the towns, and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 
And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to learn of you this morning. We want to align ourselves with those that you looked over on the shores of Galilee that you saw as sheep without a shepherd. We ask, Lord, for your compassion this morning, that you would come and that you would teach us. We thank you, Lord, uh, that uh, you are the great provider, the one who meets all of our needs. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring all of our needs to mind this morning as we think of the sufficient one, the one who provides, the one who called us to consider the ravens and consider the lilies, the one who broke bread and blessed it and distributed it, and all were filled. We pray this in your name. Amen. This is the only, except for the resurrection, the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. In fact, it was so important to the early church that we still have record of very early graffiti of Christian communities of loaves and fishes on underground church buildings, on tombs, on places like this. But in the context of Mark, again, I want to show you this morning that Mark wants us to connect the dots, not just with the miraculous power of Jesus, not just as we will see with the second time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus takes bread, blesses it, and breaks it, but also, also with the Old Testament. Now, let's just lay out a little bit of context. It says in verse 30 that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Remember, the disciples had just been sent out and they had gone into the surrounding area with the message of Jesus and the power of Jesus. They were healing people, they were casting out demons, and they were preaching the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And so now they've come back and they're excited about this. And while they are gone... Herod, who is the ruler over this area of Israel, has put John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, to death. And so Jesus calls his disciples both to a time of rest because they've been hard at work and to a time of processing their grief in the death of John the Baptist. Um, And so he wants to call them away. In fact, notice what it says at the end of verse 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, okay? Life is getting busy. Jesus is getting popular. People are continuously asking now, not just for Jesus, but for the disciples and their help. And so he says, we need to recharge. We need a little retreat. We need to get to a space away. And so they get on a boat, and they begin to follow the coastline of the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, headed to the other side. But Jesus is so popular that word gets around and the people put on their jogging shoes and they run along the shore and they follow the boat. And so when the boat lands, the same crowd that they left is waiting for them. And as we see at the end of the story, numbering more than 5,000. In fact, when it says in verse 44 that those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, that word there for men is the engendered word for men. That's not 5,000 people, that's 5,000 men, not counting women and children, Matthew adds, okay? So this is a sizable crowd, okay? Now that might not seem much when we live in Capitol Hill and there's 60,000 people living here, but Capernaum, the closest city here, probably had 10,000 people in total, okay? This is a massive crowd for this area and for this side. And so Jesus can't avoid the crowds. He can't get away from them. Remember, the whole point was that they couldn't get enough time to eat for themselves, and now Jesus pulls up on the shore, and they're there. And because all of us have done it, because we have become such uh, promoters of self-sustaining, such promoters of 
boundaries, such promoters we would be okay with and probably expect Jesus to go, hey guys, we just need 24 hours and we'll reopen on Monday, right? That's what we expect to happen, okay? But notice Jesus's response here. Remember, his heart is full of grief for the one man who, who really understood who he was. He's wanting to get away with the disciples and recharge, and notice what it says in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. His first impression is not one of irritation or frustration. His first impression is not one of figuring out how to get away from this. He doesn't even see the crowd as a problem. It says he has compassion on them. Now, obviously, this is a story about provision. It's a story about the meeting of needs, okay? And the first thing we need to understand, in fact, let's just lay a finger on this until it hurts a little bit. Think about your needs right now. Think about the things you're freaking out about. Think about the things that aren't measuring up, that aren't balancing out. Think about the things that are still in the red. Think about the big questions that you're going through right now where you're thinking, I don't know how this is going to pan out. I don't know how this is going to work. Now, if any of you are verbal processors, then you know how other people feel about those problems, right? They feel like they're problems to be addressed, so you'll just stop bringing them up. They feel like they're problems to be avoided, and so they start screening your calls, okay? Maybe, like Job's comforters, they show up in your pain and in your difficulty, and they're present for a long time, and then they just start giving advice. When they've got no skin in the game, no, no plan to help, they're just like, you know what, this is all because you did that. What do you think Jesus' response to your needs are this morning? Do you think he's checking his watch and doing the math? Do you think he's thinking to himself, you know what, you've already hit your quota for the week. I'm sorry, it was five prayers this month and you've, you've maxed out. You have no more line of grace credit. It's all, all gone. Jesus' natural impulse, gut response to need is compassion even in circumstances like these, even in his full humanity, his hunger and his tiredness, he looks out and he has compassion. And then notice it tells us why. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He realizes that the needs they have are meetable needs. He realizes that this is a community Without leadership, he realizes that these people are all desperate for care and have no caretaker. Now, on its own, that's a poignant image, like sheep without a shepherd. Especially in an agrarian culture, where shepherding is such a significant thing, it makes sense. We can hear the care and the concern in it. We can see Jesus as the shepherd, or as he even calls himself in John chapter 10, the good shepherd. Right? This is how he identifies. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Mark is actually trying to get us to think about something more than that. Okay. Like sheep without a shepherd is not a poetic phrase that Mark coined. He's referencing the Old Testament. He's trying to make a connection. He's trying to say this is about that. Okay. When he uses like sheep without a shepherd... Anyone who knows the Old Testament would be reminded of the words of Moses in Numbers chapter 27. Now, Moses has been leading the people of Israel through a wilderness, somewhat like the one that Jesus and these people are in now. God, for 40 years, has been miraculously providing manna from heaven to meet those needs. Sounds similar, right? But I want you to notice Moses' concern here in Numbers 27. Now, this is getting near the end of Israel's wandering, near the end of Moses' journey. And if you watch Mo Moses and how he takes care of and how he feels about the people of Israel, it's compelling leadership. He doesn't always get it right. In fact, he won't even get to enjoy the land that he spent all this time leading them to because of an outburst of anger. But he intercedes for the people. And he cares about the people. And when the people confront him, he fears not for himself and his leadership, but for them. It's really impressive. And now he's looking forward and he's going, okay, God is calling me to hang up the jersey. And yet there's still this two million people and they're going to move into the land. The challenges that are to come are at least equal to the challenges that were in the past. Who? 
Who is going to take care of them? And so notice what he prays here in verse 15 of Numbers 27. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Now he titles God here, the God of the spirits of all flesh. The idea is there, the God who knows every heart. Moses could select a leader. He could be impressed by the resume. He could look around and go, you know what? This is a person after my own heart and he could make the call, but that's not what he asks. He asks for the God who knows what's going on in the inside to make the call for him. But notice what he prays for. He says, verse 17, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Moses recognizes what the people of God need most is a shepherd. Now he ends up appointing Joshua. Side note, the Hebrew name Joshua and the Greek name Jesus are the same name. Okay. He appoints Joshua to go out and lead the people. And again, Joshua is a pretty impressive guy. He's a man of faith. He's the one, uh, one of two men of the spies sent into Israel who sees the whole side of the land and says, this is nothing that God can't take care of. This is going to be great. Let's go. He's also a tremendous servant. He's been serving without any, uh, without any agenda, Moses, and just being his number two this entire time. He's, in some ways, the natural candidate. But here's the thing. Like Moses, Joshua doesn't live up. In fact, he doesn't live. He dies, okay, which is the problem with leaders. And if you follow Israel throughout its history, most of the Old Testament focuses on the quality of the leadership of Israel. Think of First and Second Kings, which is about what? The kings of Israel and how much that impacts the fate of the people. Okay. And eventually... God chooses for himself a man named David, David the shepherd king. David who was a literal, only job on his resume aside from musician, and we know how that works on getting a job, uh, a literal shepherd. And God says, that's a man after my own heart. He's the one that I have chosen to be king, right? In fact, it's David who gets the idea of what a king is supposed to be because what does he, what does he say in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He realizes that his role as king is representative. It's designated authority. He's ruling on behalf of God and he either rightly represents God or he doesn't. He knows that he's supposed to be as God is. Okay. But the rest of the kings of Israel, it's kind of a, it's, it's like a, a greasy slope uh, of, of just, just rough and tumble um, descent into chaos, into rebellion. There's a few good kings along the way, and every one of them is compared to who? To David. Okay. Now, I want to draw your attention to one more place. This is in Ezekiel. Now, this is after that slippery slope of kings. This is, this is when things have gotten so bad that God's had no choice but to remove Israel from the land. And notice what Ezekiel says here in chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now when he's called to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, these are not the ones watching the literal sheep, are they? It's these leaders, okay? It's the kings. Notice his criticism here. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought with the force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on an every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. When we see that pronoun there, that possessive pronoun, my, my sheep, who's talking there? It's the God of the Old Testament, right? It's the one that David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's speaking and he looks and he sees not only his sheep as being without a shepherd, 
but he sees hirelings who are just feeding on the sheep, who take advantage of their privilege and their wealth and their power, who use it for their own glory to build their own kingdoms instead of seeing it as service to those who they are over, instead of seeing it as a call, a responsibility to care for the needs. Okay. Now notice what God says in verse 11 here. Same chapter, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then lastly, look at verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. So God says he's got two remedies here. One, he's going to be the shepherd. Two, he's going to set up a shepherd who he calls here my servant David. Now, Ezekiel is writing well after the death of David. This is looking forward to not my past servant David, but the son of David, the one who was promised. The one in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says, this is what I'm going to do. One of your descendants will rule and reign eternally. Okay. This is the background of what we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has compassion on the sheep without a shepherd because he is in the flesh the God of the Old Testament. He is the Lord who is my shepherd who we remember we shall not want because he's our shepherd, right? He's the one who makes us lie down in green pastures. This is the point that Mark is trying to make about who Jesus is, okay? That he is the promised and personified provider of the Old Testament God, the shepherd. Now, I want you to notice when we go back to Mark here, Again, in chapter 6, 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I want you to remember here that these people are not Christians. These people are not Jesus' disciples. These people are crowds, and a lot of them are there for specific reasons because they want specific things, and a lot of them are going to get those specific things, maybe say thank you, and then walk away from Jesus entirely. I want you to recognize that in this crowd, in fact, some suggest that the reason why this is mostly men and the reason why it even evokes the language of sheep without a shepherd is because there's something militaristic going on. You see, there was this group, they're mentioned in the New Testament, known as the Zealots. These were the Jews who were tired of the rule of Rome and were willing to shed blood to end it. Some of Jesus' closest disciples were zealots. Simon, the zealot, right? That's how he's labeled, okay? And so it may be that these men have gathered intentionally because they have an agenda to make Jesus their charismatic leader and finally get rid of Rome. In fact, if you read in John chapter 6, after this miracle is accomplished, they come back the next day, and what is their agenda? To make Jesus their king, okay? So that may be going on here. Um, but in all of this, in all of their agendas, in all of their needs, in all of the future that may or may not happen with them, Jesus' response is one of compassion. He looks out, he sees they have needs, and he wants to meet them. But I want you to notice the first need he desires to meet. Okay. Look again, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Matthew puts it even closer 
in the causal language there, he says, so he taught them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and because of that, he responded by teaching them. Jesus recognizes that the greatest need these people have, the greatest hunger they have, is a hunger for the truth. Now, I promise you, at least a handful, maybe even a majority of the people in the audience might not have gotten that. They're waiting for the sermon to end so they can approach the, you know, the front and talk to the pastor and get their needs met. But Jesus knows better than we do what we need. This is why when the Jews come back the next day and they go, do that again. Feed us again. Moses did it every day for 40 years. Surely you can do it again. And he says, I tell you the truth. You've come back because your stomachs are empty and not because you've understood what's going on. He says, I am the bread of life. Okay. There's a greater need. And he prioritizes and puts that need first. Now, clearly, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about the smallest of needs we have. Who is the one who meets the need of their hunger? Who is the one who even cares about it? Who is the one who notices it? It's Jesus. But he begins by teaching them. Okay. This is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we gather every week. Because one of the ways that God feeds his sheep, one of the ways that Jesus operates as shepherds in our lives is by instructing us in the way of truth. And you need it. Look, even if you're not a Christian this morning, how many things, go ahead, sometimes sit down and write a list, how many things have you done to yourself because of your own ignorance? How many places in your life have you just made a decision that wasn't well-informed, that was short-sighted, was blinded by your sinful desires and now you've just ate the consequences of that daily. You see, lots of people like to point out that sheep don't function well without a shepherd and that's probably our fault. We've domesticated sheep to the point that they can't be independent. But the correlation stands. One of the greatest lies we believe as human beings is that we are self-sufficient and autonomous. And it's not just that you need other people, although, remember, delete other people from the first six days of your life and you're dead. You wouldn't be here, okay? Think of Robinson Crusoe stranded on that island, and you go, isn't that self-sufficiency? No, because every knot he ties and every shelter he builds is an inheritance from the community he was born into. We are not independent. We're tremendously dependent on one another, but more than that, more than that, we are not independent of God. We need him to provide. And even those of us who aren't sure that God exists, when the rubber meets the road and our needs outstrip our ability, where do we turn to? God, if you're there, please help. We know it. We don't always remember it, but Jesus does. He looks out on this crowd and he says, we got to talk. Let's talk about the truth. That's why he calls Peter when he restores him in John chapter 20. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, I know you love me. And what does he tell him to do? Feed my sheep. Does he want Peter to start making sandwiches? No, he wants him to teach. Okay. And so Jesus compassionately teaches them, and he teaches them all day long until maybe four in the afternoon, five in the afternoon, sun goes down at six in the spring in Israel. Okay. It's starting to get dark. People are starting to get hungry. And so, notice, verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Okay. Now, they're stating the obvious, aren't they? Okay. What are they doing? They're trying to make a case for what comes next. Verse 36, he says, the disciples say to Jesus, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Okay. Did the disciples see the need? Yes. They see masses of hungry people. And they're far from any restaurant or any you know, uh, dining room table. And so they come with a wise plan. They say, look, we've got to call it a day, Jesus. Everybody's going to get hungry. Nobody has anything to eat. Okay. Now remember, what do we know about the disciples when this day began? They couldn't find time to eat either. Okay. I don't want to pull back you know, crack open the ribcage of the disciples and investigate their hearts here. 
but I know what it's like to be hungry. And I also know what it's like to be around someone I respect like they did Jesus and think of, okay, how can I talk about my needs without it being, aw- being aware that it's all about me? And so they come and they go, Jesus, you're being so irresponsible. The people are clearly hungry. Send them home. Now, to be fair, why would 12 men who have whatever lunches they may have, and I'm assuming have nothing, think of any other option here? That's why it's so surprising when Jesus responds to them, verse 37, he answered them, you give them something to eat. This is not some big operation nonprofit with a heavy budget and a fully functioning cafeteria and a volunteer staff. This is 12 men who just got off a boat in the wilderness with a crowd of 5,000 hungry people, right? Why does Jesus say this? Is he patronizing them? Is he also hungry and irritated? Is he like, oh, I can't believe I have to take care of this. Why can't you do it? No. See, here's the thing. God is fully okay with our desperation. In fact, us recognizing our desperation is an essential part of God meeting our needs. The disciples need to know that they can't do this. Okay? They need to come to the I can't until they're desperate enough to understand what Jesus is about to do next. Okay? Now, once again, we are trained towards independence. We always try to come, God, come to God with all of our plans and just go, okay, God, I know this will just work. I'm just, just this short. Can you just meet this need? Right? But he's forcing the disciples to show their hand. And there's nothing. There's no face cards at all. They have no way they can meet this need, and Jesus is fine with that. He just needs them to recognize it as well. Okay. Desperation and faith go hand in hand. I read one commentator, and he smartly said, the only ones who go away empty when Jesus is around are those who are already full of themselves. We have to come empty-handed. We have to come open. Now, there's a tension to that, okay? Because the next thing Jesus does is he says, tell me what's in the pantry. Open up. What resources do we have? Okay, and so notice... Um, he says, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, 200 denarii, that's two-thirds of your annual wages, okay? That's, that's a lot of money. They've done the math. In fact, John tells us that Philip came up with this number way earlier in the day, okay? They know the problem. They know that this is impossible, and it really doesn't solve the problem any because if they have to leave, why can't the people just leave and go home? They, and how are they going to carry... 5,000 lunches, sack lunches back, you know. Um, the whole thing here, but, but notice what he says to them, verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now, let's be honest here. Could Jesus have done this miracle without loaves and fishes? Does he need a starter loaf? <laughs> no. He could have just summoned this out of the air. In fact, how does God do it in the Old Testament in the wilderness? I have no idea. That's why we call crazy provision manna from heaven. It doesn't make any sense. But what God does here in Jesus Christ touches human hands and starts with five loaves and two fish. Now, to be clear here, these loaves, don't think of like French bread sticking out of your grocery bag. Uh, John tells us that this is just a little boy's lunch. Okay? This is five rolls and a couple sardines. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? But why? Why does Jesus ask them, ask them for what they have? Okay. Well, one of the things I want you to understand is that faith almost always expresses sacrifice. They're off, asked to bring these things in. Jesus uses the resources they have. Their resources are not enough. But he still asks them to bring them. Okay. And it's always this way. Faith always asks something of us. Even if Jesus' instructions to you, like at the Red Sea, are just stand still and know the salvation of God, there's a tremendous sacrifice in that, right? It's a surrender that says, but I really want to do something, like run, 
like build a rampart, right? I want to do something, and God says in the Old Testament, stand still, and Jesus here says, how much do you have? And it's not enough, and they're fully aware of that insufficiency, but it's this, what little they have, that Jesus multiplies to meet the need. Now, this is counterintuitive, but it is essential to following Jesus. Because here's the thing. God calls us all as Christians to do stuff. None of it is possible. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And you go, but, but we can do all sorts of things on our own. I can, you know, drum up volunteer support. I can gather the masses. I can enrage the politicians. I can do all of these things. But does it matter? Does it count? That's what Jesus means when he says nothing. He means nothing of worth, nothing of value, nothing that will last. Okay. Jesus calls us to do impossible things because all things are possible with God. Jesus calls us to do impossible things because that's how faith works. What God has given you to do in your life, be it in your family or with the friend that you're talking to or with some uh, role in a church or a ministry or whatever it is, he's given you something to trust him to do. And so you're going to look at the pantry and it's going to be almost bare. And you're going to look at your intelligence before that conversation you're going to say you don't have enough. You're going to look at the decisions that need to be made and you're going to recognize that you lack wisdom. That is by the book the way God works. It's the way he works with the disciples here. Remember, the disciples are in training. This lesson isn't for the crowds. It's for them. This little conversation they have beforehand, this is Jesus teaching them the way these things work and he basically says, gather up what little resources you have and give them to me. That surrender, that act of sacrifice, that is essential to faith. Okay. And so they do this, and they give it to Jesus. Notice what happens next, verse 38. He said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he organize and order the crowd? Why does it tell us there were groups of hundreds and fifties? What I would suggest to you is that Jesus is setting the stage to show and demonstrate the significance about what's to happen, about what's to happen, okay? How do we know there were 5,000 men not counting women and children there? Because they were arranged orderly across the hillside in groups of 50s and 100s. At a glance, you could go, oh my gosh, there's 5,000 people here. And this is important because we're really bad at counting crowds, okay? Especially if you're a preacher or a pastor. Um, but here it is, he lays them out all orderly, and then notice, here's the important thing, verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to disciples to set before the people, okay? So he takes the food, he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing, that doesn't mean he blesses the food. When we pray a blessing over the food, we're blessing God for the food and not sanctifying the food, okay? In fact, we know the traditional blessing, which was basically, God, thank you for the successful farming season that led to the existence of this bread. That was a traditional Jewish blessing, okay, my paraphrase of it, okay. But he takes it, he blesses God for it, he breaks it, and he distributes it to the disciples. And apparently, as he does so, he just keeps breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. It reminds us of uh, some of the miracles in the Old Testament that Elijah does, right? where he tells the lady who's completely out of money to pay her rent and is about to be put on the street, he says, what do you have? She says, I have a little bit of oil. And he says, I want you to pour it out in a jar. But every jar, gather up as many jars as you can, and as soon as you're out of jars, you're going to be out of oil. And she just begins to pour, and all the jars fill up, and she sells that for the rent money. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. Little becomes lots. And it's the same thing that happens here. But I want you to think about the math here. Five loaves between 5,000 men, not counting women and children. That's one roll divided into 1,000 portions. Two fish divided by 5,000, that's 2,500 portions per fish. Okay. What happens here, there's no, no getting around how miraculous it is. God does an amazing work in Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to notice two things about the miracle here. Verse 
um, verse 42. He divided the two fish among them all, verse 42, and they ate, all ate, and were satisfied. Okay. This is not like an airplane snack, right? Until you guys get home, let's just, let's just slake your thirst. Let's just get rid of a little bit of hunger. Let's just get you home. They eat until they're full. But I want you to notice something else. This bread and fish doesn't become lobster thermidor or filet mignon okay, or whatever the vegan equivalent of, a, of a fancy food is. Uh, it's simple. What Jesus does here takes simple things and brings about simple hunger. When the Bible promises that God will take care of your needs, he doesn't promise he'll give you a seven-bedroom house or a ten-course meal. There's a simplicity here, but there's also a satisfaction, isn't there? There's a fullness. Nobody walks away from this hungry, but Jesus provides in very simple ways. Okay. There's a balance to be remembered there. There's something to be understood there. Listen, it appears to me when you look at the God of the Bible, when you look at the words of Jesus Christ, that God honestly expects those of us who are Christians to trust that he will take care of our needs, period. Every day. Just think of what Jesus says. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, food, shelter, and clothing, they'll be taken care of. In fact, the disciples have already learned this because when he sends them out, he says, don't take any food. Don't even put money in your wallet. I'm gonna pay the bill the whole way along. And I realized this morning as I was thinking through that passage, they must have been out and about for months, okay? Because in that time, Jesus, or John the Baptist is arrested and then beheaded. Because during that time, the whole community comes to know who Jesus is. Because now it's the springtime, and that's seasonally moved on in the story quite a lot. Maybe the disciples have been on the road for months, and they've learned as Jesus has miraculously provided for their need through a generous donation through just finding the right thing, through all sorts of means, and yet God has taken care of them. And here he does this. He does it miraculously. And they all ate and were satisfied. On top of that, verse 43, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Okay, I hate to use this illustration because I don't want to defame the disciples, but when you read basket here, think fanny pack. Okay, that's about the right size. These are the individual lunch sacks of the disciples, just baskets that everybody would wear that would carry their lunch in. But here's the point. The hungry disciples come out with a full basket each after all are fed. Okay. They go home with a souvenir of God's provision. Do you have those? Do you have those places in your life, those memorials, those Ebenezers like we sang this morning that remind you that God has your back because he's taken care of you in the past? those little things that sit on your windowsill or those highlights in your Bible that say, that's right, God is always faithful. The disciples go home with these 12 baskets, 12 more than were necessary, one for each of them. And then it tells us in verse 44, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, again, the Bible reiterates over and over again that God is our provider and he's our only hope. And sometimes he does this through miraculous provision. Okay, I know it personally. I've fretted about bills and walked into my office at church and found an envelope full of cash. Okay, I've had those things happen. I've gotten letters in the mail with just the money we needed just when we needed it. Those things happen. Okay. But the truth is, every paycheck you get from the home office is God's provision. And you go, that's not fair. I worked very hard for that. Yes, you did. But the raw resources that got you that job, that you used to employ that, those are gifts. The disciplined family that you grew up in that taught you how to work hard, do you deserve that? Did you earn that? Is that something you did? No. The raw brain power that you have to make those decisions, the health that keeps you working, all those things are God's gift. We've got to watch out for God provides or I make my own way. There's really only one way here. But I will tell you this, that just like God backs Israel up against the wall with the Red Sea behind them and the chariots bearing down on them, 
Just like he leads the disciples here out into the wilderness with 5,000 hungry people and says, watch this, God will work the same way in your life because he's trying to tell you something. Why does God make you hungry? So you can remember who satisfies your hunger. That's what Jesus is working at here. And here's the thing. Jesus clearly cares for his disciples to care about the physical needs of others. Within the church, just read the first few chapters of Acts, and outside the church. Okay. We should have the same compassionate response. We should take what little resources we have and willingly share them with other people and watch as God multiplies it and provides for them as well. We should be concerned with the hunger of other people, however. Jesus has a bigger agenda here, and we should too. Mark has a bigger agenda here. He doesn't just want to connect it with the God of the Old Testament. Because what happens is, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, we again find Jesus presiding over a meal, not this time out in the wilderness, not this time with 5,000 people, but in the upper room with just his disciples. And we find the exact same verbs here. He took the bread, he looked up to heaven, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. In John chapter 6, again, Jesus says, you came to fill your bellies, but I am the bread from heaven. Okay. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, O Lord. Okay. To have full bellies and an empty soul is a horrible fate. And so Jesus is doing this miracle not just to take care of a problem which, to be fair, he put everybody in, but to show who he is and to show what we need. Okay. And so when we talk about God being the great provider, when we talk about Jesus being the good shepherd, we need to remember that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. We need to remember that he isn't just the provider of our needs, he is the provision for our greatest need that he doesn't just give us bread, that his body was broken. And as often as we partake of this bread, we remember that Jesus was offered up fully and freely and we are nourished on his death. We are given life in his sacrifice. Okay. And I wanna just say one last time, just hear these words. The psalmist says, I've never once seen the righteous go hungry. And I know the challenges that come along with that. I know that starvation is real. I know these things are real. Okay. But I also know that God has called us to ask. And then he says, if your parents, who are evil, make you a sandwich when you ask when you're growing up, instead of a scorpion, they give you an egg to eat for breakfast instead of a stone. How much more will your heavenly Father, who knows your needs before you ask them, give you what you need? And so I want to take some time, and I want to give you an opportunity to pray. And I want you to own up to the lack. I want you to recognize what's missing. I want you to lay your finger on the place where you are deficient or where funds are deficient, or where you don't have a way forward. And I want you to say that I am a sheep who needs a shepherd. Let's pray. Father, as we lift up our needs to you this morning, help us to reflect on what Paul says in Romans when he says, if you gave your only son for us, how will you not give us all good things? I thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers this morning, that we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace, that we can cast our cares before you because you care for us. 
the same compassion you had on that ragtag group in the wilderness you have for us this morning. But we also want to recognize, Father, that our needs, the ones we know, may not be the greatest needs in our life. And we just want to give you the freedom to meet that greatest need, to do whatever it takes to show us yourself, to make us satisfied in you. We know sometimes, Lord, what feels like starvation is withdrawals because you're weaning us off our idolatries. Teach us what Paul called the secret of contentment, that he can do all things in Christ who strengthens him. pray that you'd show us what little you have, what little we have that you want us to give back to you, to present to you and say, do with it what you will, Lord. It's yours anyways. You gave it to me to begin with. And as we partake of communion as a church, Lord, help us to reflect. Help us to remember both the sacrifice and the satisfaction that comes with your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. And we thank you, Lord, that the God of the Old Testament who led in the wilderness and provided manna from heaven and loved and compassionately led a group of rebels. We thank you, Lord, that that God became flesh. We thank you, Lord, that that same God is available and listening to us today, even interceding before the Father for us. We praise you today in Jesus' name, amen. As we respond this morning, we'll continue to worship, which is appropriate. When we hear God's truth, we proclaim, yes, this is true with our worship, with our prayers.